Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. World War II is easy to understand. Everybody knew what they were fighting for and why. In modern wars, we don't know that. Why do people go to Iraq? Why do people go to Afghanistan? Why are they dying? And vets are having this question. And I talk to a lot of young people. I'm a professor. I teach graduate students at Georgetown. And they think that forever wars is now the new normal, which is sad and tragic because it doesn't have to be that way. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. On today's episode, we're going to run through some of the top news stories. In our main segment, we're going to share our interview with the authors of The New Rules of War, Sean McFate. And to close out, we'll be talking about what's on our mind outside politics. Before we get started, we have an event this Saturday in my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, at the McCracken County Public Library. So if you were just waiting patiently to make a visit to Paducah, Kentucky, because I talk about it all the time because it's a beautiful place. Now's your chance. You can come see us live podcast. We're going to be doing a book signing at two o'clock at Flower and Furbish. It's going to be really fun. Beth's going to get to meet Top Chef Sarah, which I'm really excited about. And you guys can all come too and come meet at Freight House. It'll be fantastic. I'm really excited. It's going to be a fun weekend. Me too. Also, we are still seeing signups for our Hashtag if you give a rep a book initiative started by one of our amazing listeners. So we will put the link to both of the Google spreadsheets in the show notes. If you would like to sign up to send a copy of our book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, a guide to Gracefield Political Conversation to your representative or senators, then you can click in the spreadsheet and sign up and send them a book. We're really excited about this initiative. We've got about 40% of the Senate covered already, which I think is phenomenal. We are heartbroken to hear the news out of Alabama that 23 people have died and homes have been wrecked and trees uprooted in central Alabama as tornadoes just 
tour through the area over the weekend. So the search and rescue effort is underway there. And we're thinking of everyone who's impacted by that tragedy, which I know extends far beyond the state of Alabama. I feel like we're trying to figure out new ways to talk about natural disasters. And sometimes Mm -hmm. there just isn't anything new to say, except this is horrible. I'm so sorry it occurred. And it's important for us to work together with our friends and neighbors as we help them through these times. This is a really high death toll. 23 people. I agree. That's a really high for a tornado. And I think that it just was an intense weather weekend. The weather was changing dramatically across the country in a very short period of time, which is a recipe for tornadoes. So I don't know if there was a lack of warning or if it was just they were so strong the damage was intense, but that seems like a really high number of people that were killed. So we're heartbroken for the entire area. And it's important to figure out if you want to be helpful, what can actually help. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, checking out the resources pointed to by media outlets in Alabama on things that would be helpful. Money is always the best way to help. I know people get tired of hearing that, but it is. We've talked before on the show about how when we want to help in ways that aren't helpful, what we really do is create a second wave of catastrophe that people Mm -hmm. have to deal with. We've also talked, though, about how important it is when you can help to pitch in and do that. There's a part of our book where we discuss how important the Cajun Navy was during the hurricanes in Texas and that civilian relief efforts do not represent government failing. It's a it's a success factor. We want everyone who is actually able to help to pitch in and do that. So if you are interested, if this calls out to your heart, look for ways to donate and be involved that can actually help the search and rescue effort in Alabama. Moving on to political news coming from Congress, Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, made some news during his interviews on the Sunday talk shows when he said, basically, I definitely think President Trump has obstructed justice and we are about to really ramp up our investigations into that and other areas of corruption. So Jerry Nadler, for people who don't know, longtime New York City congressman, he was the one who kind of scoffed, smiled, was not impacted by Matthew Whitaker's very, very rude testimony (laughs) before Congress. He is not new to this game, is what I'm saying. And so I think it's great that Congress is ramping up its oversight of the Trump administration And I am happy to see someone as experienced as Jerry Nadler heading that up. The quotes that I've seen from him talk so much about making the case to the American people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. I was listening to Meet the Press over the weekend and they were talking about polling that shows, you know, the president just hangs in the 40s on approval. He's down a little bit to a generic Democrat in a generic poll for 2020. And you kind of listen to that and think, how can this be? At the same time, we heard some polling numbers that said about 38 percent of Americans say that they want an independent candidate, which is the highest that number has ever been this far out from a presidential election. And Chad and I were talking about that and how we say we want that. But the 38 percent of Americans who say we want that are unlikely to be donating money and canvassing neighborhoods and volunteering for campaigns, doing the work of getting those people elected. And that lift is much heavier for an independent candidate than for a candidate supported by one of the major parties. It's just an interesting time because I think the president gets by with a lot of these big stories, in part because it's all hiding in plain sight. As I reflected on the Cohen hearing, I thought it was surprising to hear it put so plainly and in such detail. Yet, I didn't hear anything that I didn't know. And I think what Representative Nadler's committee is going to uncover, it will be surprising to have it laid out in the halls of Congress, but I don't think we'll learn anything that we haven't known. And I think when the economy is pretty good and most people are just going about their day and content to kind of complain about the parties, but not diving into every news cycle the way that we do, it's just hard to make this case to the American people. It's hard to say, hello, America, we need something as intense and controversial as impeachment to deal with something that's just not affecting your everyday life. And it's affecting the everyday lives of lots of people, but not enough people. That's what those polling numbers tell me, right? It's it's not to minimize anything. It's to say, look how many Americans aren't living 
the Trump presidency the way you live it if you are on political Twitter or the way you live it if you are an immigrant or the way you live it if you are part of a community that the president regularly denigrates. It just really kind of carves out these pockets of Americans and shows how much work there is to do for someone like Representative Nadler to make that case to the American people as a whole. So I think there are two things there. With regards to the the desire for an independent candidate, if 38% of the American public is interested in that, then to me, the solution is not organizing for a candidate who will still most likely lose. But I think those people and the people on both sides of the aisle who are only 38% pleased in their own parties should get together and organize to change the system, to do some ranked choice voting so people feel more represented. Because I would be much more interested in talking about an independent candidate if we had ranked choice voting. And so I wasn't saying, I wasn't gambling, but I was really asserting my values. So I wish the 38% of Americans would get organized to change that, because I think that would be really impactful, important change for America, particularly our presidential elections. There's already a lot of interesting changes. I think we're really close to hitting the threshold for the states who have passed the legislation that the their electoral college votes would go to the popular vote winner. Have you seen that initiative? Yes, I have. I'm here for that because I hate the Electoral College. So I hope that moves forward. I think that I think Colorado may be the next one voting for it. And if they vote for it, it would trigger enough of the votes that everybody would go with the popular vote winner. With regards to the Judiciary Committee, I think what's so important for Jerry Nadler to do is not necessarily I don't know if make the case is the right word, but it's like sort it out. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily a lack of proof is the reason people aren't paying attention. But it's like you said, it's there, it's so overwhelming that it's hiding in plain sight. I think what was so impactful of the Michael Cohen testimony is that it it stopped being all mixed in with the Russia investigation. It was this moment for him to pull it out and say, this is my role. These are my observations. This is what I did with regards to the way this president functions. And I think the more the Judiciary Committee can do that, can kind of pull it apart and lay out the different pieces plainly for the American public, that would be really important. Instead of trying to put it all together in one big giant impeachment case, but say, okay, here is, we're going to take this person and this person, this person, and we're going to lay out really clearly how he committed fraud in his businesses. And then we're going to talk about really clearly how he obstructed justice and how he was engaging in corruption during the political campaign you know what I mean? Like, I think that's part of the problem. It's hiding in plain sight because there's so much of it and it needs to be pulled apart and identified. I think that's right. And I think it's just difficult that we always want a coherent, sweeping story about what's mm-hmm. happened. And we're just not going to get that in this case. And so the question is, can we understand crime as crime, even when it's not a coherent story about crime? It is much more a story of an organization that has a very cavalier attitude towards law and a person whose ego has led him to think that most laws don't apply to him. And who's now in charge of enforcing our country's laws. And who's now the head <laughs> of the Department of Justice. Right. Oh, it's so funny if it wasn't so sad. Speaking of presidential politics, there are more Democrats in the race now. Welcome, Governors Hickenlooper and Inslee to the Democratic primary. We seem to have entered the governor portion of the program. Are you excited about that? I do like governors. I'm very, I know you I'm do. a very big fan of governors. I think somebody with executive experience is important. I think they're important perspectives to have in the race. Seems to me that Governor Inslee is here to make the case for climate the way that Bernie Sanders was here to make the case for income inequality is an important conversation in the primary. Not to say that that's a, a losing argument. I think he could emerge and be quite successful with that strategy. But right now it seems much more like an issue campaign than a person campaign. Governor Hickenlooper, kind of the opposite. Look at my record. Look how effective I've been over time. This is a crisis. We need a steady hand. I'm that person. Those seem to be the arguments to me. For those who don't know, Jay Inslee is the governor of the state of Washington. And John Hickenlooper was the governor of Colorado. I'm really intrigued by that. I like any governor that can leave office and people still like him. I feel like that's a good sign. It's hard to do. Very hard. to Right. Do. And so Colorado is an interesting state. I think it is a good mix of perspectives and political party. I mean, it's a purple state. I mean, I think any governor that comes from a purple state that's important, like Colorado is, is going to have a little bit of a head start. I ran through the list of candidates with my husband last night and asked, would you be willing to vote for any of these folks? And 
with the exception of Hickenlooper, followed closely by Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar. Oh, yeah. He was a no. He would vote for Howard Schultz over every one of the other candidates. So just a little barometer of one of those kind of 38 percent, very dissatisfied with the Republican Party, but certainly not a Democrat for what it's worth. My support for Kirsten Gillibrand is really firming up. It's just really firming up. The more I read, especially her unapologetic, these profiles are like, she is running an unapologetic feminist campaign. I've always liked her. I've always thought that she, particularly the way she handled sexual assault in the military and went after that problem, was so courageous and important and not necessarily like a winning political issue for her. I just, mm, I love her so much. I'm just, I'm just being honest. My support is firming up for her. I think Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, and Inslee have a compelling argument to people who are not progressive in that in the 2019 sense of the word. It's a hard lift. We're just talking about with the numbers around President Trump. His numbers stay pretty stable in that 40-ish percent range because people's jobs are good right now, right? Like there's a lot of good opportunity. The economy's bumping along. Things are fine. And we all have memories of times when the economy was much, much worse than it is today. And a lot of the progressive Democrats are running very much on a things are not fine message. Mm. And I think with Hickenlooper, Inslee and Gillibrand, particularly, you can you can sense a little bit of things are not the worst and they could be better. And look how I could make them better, leading with integrity or with with Inslee, Mm -hmm. you know, things are not the worst today, but they're going to be. Let's get on top of that. Well, before we move on to our interview, we wanted to compliment the other side. I'm complimenting our Senator Rand Paul, building on my compliment from last week. He has come out and said he is going to vote to end the president's emergency declaration at the border. So there's a congressional process. Basically, the House has already passed a resolution to end the emergency declaration. The Senate is expected to vote on that soon. Rand Paul is the tiebreaker at this point. So with his vote, it will pass in the Senate. Expect to be vetoed by the president, but I still think and really respect him coming out and saying, I support the president, but we're not going to expand executive authority. I mean, he would have lost all credibility since he stands so firmly in this not expanding government power situation if he had not done this. But you never know with him. So I'm really glad he did it. Also glad that my representative Thomas Massey has stood strong on this Mm -hmm. as well. Good to see Kentucky hanging in around some principled objections to the executive, even though they have not always done so. This is an Mm -hmm. important one, Mm -hmm. an important precedent to set. I'd like to compliment Representative Katie Porter of California, continuing the theme of freshman congresswomen knowing their stuff in advance of important committee hearings. Katie Porter was involved in questioning the CEO of Equifax as part of the House Financial Services Committee. And she was prepared. She's a law professor who is kind of on a break from being a professor so she can serve in Congress. And she had read the legal briefs filed in a class action against Equifax. And so in that class action, Equifax had argued that there was no harm done when people's personal information was discovered in connection with the breach. Oh, fascinating. Tell me more. So Representative Porter asked the CEO of Equifax if he would, on the record during the televised congressional hearing, give his name, birth date, and social security number to the committee. Love it. He declined to do that. And she said, what are you concerned about happening if you give that information today? And he said, well, it's sensitive information. I've been a victim of identity theft three times, and I don't want that to happen again. And she said, well, I'm curious then why your lawyers are arguing in court that no harm has been done to individuals that this has happened to as a result of your company's actions. And it was just you could see on his face that he was not prepared for that question. She was very respectful in her tone. It didn't feel like she was there to do a showstopper. She just felt like a lawyer who had done her homework and came prepared to ask some questions. And I think both her preparation and her style made it a really effective moment to say, and I probably wouldn't agree with her on a lot of solutions to what we do about these problems, but I think it was good that she said, look, what you do in all three branches of our government matters. And here you are before Congress telling me something that's inconsistent with what your company is advocating in our judicial branch. And I would ask you to think about that. And it was just, I thought it was outstanding. Good job. So. As we face a lot of global turmoil, there 
is continued fighting with ISIS in Syria. The North Korea summit failed. India and Pakistan are still involved in some very high stakes, high tension, back and forth. We thought this would be a really important time to share our interview with Sean McFate, the author of The New Rules of War. We had a fascinating conversation with him about the ways in which war has changed and what that means for our global environment. And we think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So here's our interview with Sean McFate. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are so excited to be joined today by Sean McFate, the author of The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, and also a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He is here to talk with us about a subject we've been bringing up over and over again on Pantsy Politics for a while, which is, what is war anymore? How has war changed? What does victory look like since war has stopped looking like it looked for several hundred years. And Sean, we are so excited to have you here to help us work through some of these areas. Well, thanks. It's great to be on your show. The first thing I wanted to talk about is, I think one of the really big questions you're asking, honestly, I don't think you're asking it anymore. I think you're answering it, which is war is not what it used to be. 
war has changed. We're not talking about World War II. And I think we all know that sort of inherently, but we haven't done a great job as a country of talking about that in a more direct way and saying, okay, well, since we can all look around and see that it's changing, what does that mean for our military? What does that mean for the members of our armed services? What does that mean for what we spend our money on and what we think about as citizens when we look out at the global order or disorder, as you describe in your book. Can you can you talk us through like where you started thinking about this question about what is war and how it's changed? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. I mean, I wrote this book, The New Rules of War, because I was angry. I'm a veteran. I'm a, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. And like many of your listeners, probably I have friends who were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. As an American taxpayer, I was furious to see trillions of dollars flushed down the toilet for these places and other places, and to see our national image tarnished by low-level foes, all while achieving nothing on the ground, arguably making them much worse. I mean, Iraq was more stable under Saddam Hussein. And, you know, we have the best military in the world. We have the best troops, training, technology, our budget. The UD's Department of Defense budget is bigger than the next eight largest militaries in the world combined. I know. You know? When I got to that part of your book, I just had to take a minute. I had to take a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's just the book has a lot of minutes like that, I think. Yes, it does. Um, you know, and that was my experience when I first ran into that. And the question is, like, what's the problem? If we've got the best military, one of the unilateral superpower, all this stuff, then why are we – why is the last time we won a war decisively? 1945. You know, the world ran on vacuum tubes the last time the U.S. won decisively. And it's not just the U.S. It's the West. I mean, NATO and everything else. And so that's the puzzle of the book. Like, how – you know, what, what's the problem? And the answer, of course, is that warfare has changed. And our adversaries grasp this, and they exploit it, and we are still fighting the last war. And even though people generally sense like things are, are different, they don't understand the depths of it and the contours of it, and that's what the new rules of war sort of lays bare. I think the best thing you start with is laying out, first of all, who fights wars has changed. We want to live in this world where war is only defined by two nation states in conflict over resources or land or whatever. And that's just not true anymore. One of, I thought the most engaging sort of where it was really clicking, I had a lot of aha moments and it's particularly relevant with the recent conviction of El Chapo is where you say drug cartels are at war and we treat it like a law enforcement problem, but that's a war. That's that what they're doing is fighting for land and resources. I didn't even know Acapulco was so dangerous. I guess I still thought it was a (laughs) Nice place to visit because that's what I always thought of Acapulco. I think my dad honeymooned at Acapulco with my stepmom. Anyway, like when you were writing about that, I'm like, that makes so much sense to me. Like we want it to be countries, even though we all know that's not who we're fighting anymore. That's right. I mean, so we have, there's this truism that happens to be true. You know, generals always fight the last war or the last successful war. And for us, of course, that's World War II. And that remains our strategic paradigm, even though we've been fighting sort of non-World War II ever since 1945. Things that generals like, now surely weren't fighting in World War II. They're too, that would, they'd be too old, aren't they, Vietnam-era generals at this point? They are, but they've inherited this. And in some mm. ways, to become a flag officer, you have to sort of be institutionalized, you know? Mm. And so the institution is embracing this way of war. And for us, it's like Westphalian, the Westphalian order of nation states and regular war. We even use normative language to describe it, regular versus irregular war, conventional versus unconventional war. That's really bizarre if you think about it. In truth, you know, war has moved beyond the purview of the state. And we all see this. And then there are wars without states today where states, rather than driving war, are become booty of war. Mm-hmm. And narco wars in, in Latin America are a great example. I mean, you have cartels at war with each other. These are real wars with chains of command and everything else, and they fight for territory and everything else. And countries like Guatemala and Salvador are just loot. They're like war treasure. And Chapo is a great example because he was he was like, if you will, the, the chief of one of the of one of the great powers, you know, in Latin America. And yet we still view that not as war, but criminality. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to think about what we privilege as war in our society. It's also with El Chapo, 
it's criminality and it's so short-sighted because yes, it is great that El Chapo has been brought to justice, but that war continues because the idea that arresting someone is a criminal outlook when the reality is that it's a war and arresting him while important has not stopped the narco war in Mexico. Right. I mean, this he's traded or he's inherited an institution. It's not mm-hmm. just about people. And that's the issue. It's funny, though, that we, we look at some armed, armed non-state actors like ISIS as a threat. But yet we don't look at the ones south of our border like uh, Chapo as a threat. We look at it as a police problem. Mm-hmm. And this is where we go wrong. What I think is so interesting in the way you talk about durable disorder, it seems to me it's not so much that we're stuck in the past because you also describe how there are some pretty timeless things happening in the way other mm-hmm. nations are conceiving of war. I thought about like pirates and medieval feudalism as I was reading your book. And you make the point very well that technology is not going to save us. This is not a book about how we need a bunch of robots ready to fight. It really just seems like we're stuck around this World War II era of battle. And I wonder if that's just because it's a great story and there was a clear enemy and it's easy to understand why it was fought. Yeah, I think that's right. And World War II is easy to understand. Everybody knew what they were fighting for and why. In modern wars, we don't know that. Why do people go to Iraq? Why do people go to Afghanistan? Why are they dying? And vets are having this question. And I talked to a lot of young people. I'm a professor. I teach graduate students at Georgetown. And they think that forever wars is now the new normal, which is sad and tragic because it doesn't have to be that way. We are just misperceiving it. And we spend... You know, it's, it's funny because I think, you know, in some ways, budgets are moral documents because they do not lie. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the amount of money we invest in the Department of Defense versus like the State Department, it's like the fiddler crab with that huge one claw and a tiny other little other claw. And we are investing in things like robots and, you know, and artificial intelligence, which nobody knows what that really means. But the idea that they want uh, the Department of Defense thinks that in the future there will be a D-Day landing, but the landing craft, when it, when it lands, will have robots coming out rather than people. Meanwhile, you know, nobody fights that way anymore. War's moved on. Our notion of war is not, and that's why we're struggling, is because warfare is no longer about the Westphalian nation-state, which is sort of what World War II was. It's about something quite different. It, warfare looks it looks more like the 12th century than the 20th now, to your point earlier about the Middle Ages. Well, and I think one of the other really great points you make is it's not just about who is fighting war, that we're locked in this idea that it needs to be nation states. But yeah. despite the fact that we are fighting forever wars and other areas with real enemies, sometimes nation states, because there's no declared war and we haven't officially put that label on it. China and Russia are able to exploit that and push the boundaries and interfere in our elections or go to Crimea or take over the South China Sea and work on these little victories because they kind of throw up their hands and go, oh, but it's not an act of war. We're not at war. So clearly you can't get mad at us and take in and make and take any actions against these clearly sort of bad acts and bad actors because, oh, no, well, we're not at war. So you can't do that. It's not an act of war. And that is part of their strategy, to keep us guessing about are we at war or not. So here's the deal. One of the, the, this book, The New Rules of War, lists 10 new rules of war. One of the new rules is that there's no such thing as war or peace. It's war and peace. Mm-hmm. Both coexist always. The problem is the traditional conventional war thinker thinks of war as like a light switch. It's either on or off. Mm-hmm. And that war is the failure of peace and that when you declare war, you can do things that are amoral that you would not do in peace. And then when, when peace occurs, then you go back to normalcy. But that's actually not how warfare works, at least not today. War is, is fuzzy and gray. And one of the strategies of our adversaries, whether it be terrorists or Russia or China, is they get right in between our space of war and peace. What we conceive to be war and peace, which is our, which frankly is absurd, but we have this, you know, they get right in between that. So China and the South China Sea goes right up to the brink of war for us. We would, we would react, and then they stop, but they keep what they capture, and they keep on doing that. And over the years, they capture the South China Sea one island at a time. And that's, that's our problem is that, that 
one of the strategies of China and Russia today to win is they do things that don't flip our light switch to war so that we remain docile and at peace and they exploit the heck out of that. How do you define winning in that durable disorder world? Well, that's a great question. So in the old rules of war, winning was, look at World War II or World War I or the Napoleonic Wars. Winning was killing more enemy, taking their territory, and flying your flag over their capital. That's not what winning is today. I mean, look at ISIS today or the Islamic State. We could take their territory. We can fly our flag over Mosul or Raqqa. We can, you know, kill them all. But that doesn't fix it because you still have an ideology that is fueling this type of warfare. So war today, the way winning works, it's a lot more nuanced, just like war is more nuanced. It's, first of all, did you achieve your political objective? Because one of the ways you can win today is just by making your enemy not achieve their political objective. Sometimes all you've got to do is simply survive to win a war. So there's winning is, is more nuanced. If you look at what Russia is doing against us right now, I mean, there's no question that Russia wants to basically eclipse us as a, as a power in the world. They're not, the old rules of war, what they would do is that they would threaten force. Now what they do is they tamper with U.S. elections. And who cares about the sword when you can manipulate the arm that wields it. And they're being much more clever using information. And so victory is found in the information space today. And and in some ways, war is becoming more epistemological, where telling truth from lies determines winners and losers. It's no longer about capturing the enemy's capital. I think one of the best points you make when working through what is victory going to look like and how are we going to get there is that We need to stop investing so much money in technology and fighter jets that never get flown. I'm not even going to talk about that chapter. It made me so mad. Um, But we need to start investing in people. One of the biggest aha moments I had when reading your book was the moment when you talked about the collisions in the U.S. Navy. I remember those happening. I remember a conversation Beth and I had where we were like, what is going on? Is some like I had the sense of like, are we under attack? Are these some stealth attacks they don't want anybody to know about? When of course Oxen's Razor, it was much more simple, which says they had been neglecting the training and that these were mistakes in which we elevated technology over people and weren't investing in the proper training for these giant naval ships. You know, it's it, it's right. So we had all sorts of basic naval ships running into freighters in the ocean, which is really kind of absurd when you think about, you know, this is not like, you know, jets going eight, you know, eight, 700 miles an hour. These, you know, they're not going very fast. We, we fetishize technology so much that we have our young sailors training on technological systems rather than basic seamanship. And that's a problem. In fact, it used to be in the old, old days, if you were a, a young officer, you go to six months of training someplace before you even set foot in a ship to learn basic seamanship, navigation, all those normal things, right? It, then in like 2000, they, they said, hey, you just report to your ship and we'll give you a stack of CD-ROMs and, and learn it in, the, in your spare time on your bunk on your laptop. Which, of course, is absurd. You can't do that. And plus, you know, life on board a Navy ship is pretty harsh. I mean, you're looking 90, 100-hour workdays. And the old joke is that the only difference between a prison and a ship is that you can't drown in a prison. <laughs> um, so, But, I mean, that, that's, that's the problem. I mean, we, we generally fetishize technology too much. And we should be investing in gray matter, not silicon. I mean, it's, it's also kind of weird because if you ask people in Washington, D.C., experts or so-called experts about what is the future of war, they usually give you some rendition of World War II with better technology, right? Mm -hmm. They think that in the South China Sea with China, there's going to be a big fight like Midway, except it's going to involve F-35s. That's not how South China Sea is being won by China, as we already discussed. But more importantly is that if there's one lesson from the last 70 years of warfare, it's this, is that technology is not decisive in modern war. Since the 1950s, we've had super advanced technological militaries lose to Luddites, lose to technological primitives, whether it's France and Indochina and Algeria or Great Britain against Palestine or Cyprus or the Soviets in Afghanistan or the United States in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, technology is no longer decisive, yet our Department of Defense invests heavily in technology. 
heavily. And that's the problem. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Your book helped me crystallize a thought that I've been working through for a while Sarah and I are preparing to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal on the show, and I've been reading the Green New Deal thinking, this is bananas. But then I started thinking about your statement that, for example, an aircraft carrier ship costs more than the entire budget we have for special forces. And it kind of made me realize that we've almost just been using the military as economic stimulus in our country and kind of a weird patriotic fetish instead of actually thinking about what we're trying to do. So you talk a lot about the importance of special forces. Can you share some of that with our listeners? Our military spends, a, you know, our military budget is like the size of a small country's GDP, all right? And we, most of it doesn't go to war anymore. It's like aircraft carriers. And there's always an old joke about how many nuclear submarines do you need to defeat ISIS? And the, the Navy always answers, not enough. And we, in some ways, we do use this. One reason the F-35, which costs more than two Boeing 767s and doesn't fight, is that part of of Lockheed Martin's congressional strategy is most every congressional district makes some part for the F-35, right? And that's their congressional strategy. And I'll tell you what, it's successful. And 
We have a, a long habit, going back to the founding of, of our union, of the sort of business and politics. This is, they, they are the double helix that makes the, the DNA of our country. And this is not a new thing. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt talks about this in 1913. Famously, Eisenhower, a five-star general, said, you know, the military-industrial complex is a big problem. And he means by that is, is the conflicts of interest between business, Congress, and the military and how that generates war. And if you look at the F-35 fighter jet, it's an example of this, right? You have a fighter jet that costs, the whole program costs $1.5 trillion, oh. right? That's more than Russia's GDP on a fighter plane, a small one. You know, and how many times has it gone to war in two long wars? Zero combat missions, zero. And yet we're buying more of these things. Why? It's a dog that doesn't hunt. Why do we need it? And so there's a question of, like, who's serving whom here? Even people in the military are like, we don't need this thing. But it's being shoved down the military's throat to some extent. So what is the purpose of this? And people ask me, like, if you were the Secretary of Defense, what would you do? The first thing I would do is I would slash the Department of Defense's military budget. That would do two things. One, it would, it would make the military wake up to like, the new rules of war Second is that would get rid of all these conventional weapons like the F-35, which are no good for modern war. They're already obsolete. They don't go to war. That's, that's how you measure the, the worth of any weapon is its utility. And third, I think we could use that money elsewhere in our, in our lives. You know, I mean, there's a lot of other places that need a couple trillion dollars. I wrote down when I was reading your book, though, where you were talking about insurgents and their survival mm -hmm. is based on adaptability. And I thought, yes, but an establishment like the Department of Defense is the exact opposite. It's right there in the name. Adapting is not established. Adapting is death for an establishment, for change, for something like the Department of Defense, for something like the military industrial complex. And it just seems like such a big mountain to climb. I mean, I love your ideas. I think investing in special forces and I love the foreign legion idea. Like, I think those are so so such a great idea. But like you said, it just seems when you have investments in this industrial complex in every congressional district, which isn't just it's not just Congress people saying I'm getting donations and I have to do this. It's also constituents saying that's my job. Do not get rid of yeah. the factory that makes it. This is my job. Those are hard choices to make and hard decisions to make. But it's also the lives of our military members, which is what we talk so much about. And we fetishize in this country, but when we have to make real choices because this, this new way of fighting is wreaking havoc on their psyches and their lives, I don't, I don't know if we're willing to make them. I mean, to slash the Department of Defense budget right now would be political suicide on either side of the aisle. So it just feels so, how do you, how do you stay hopeful as you look at all the changes that need to be made in our military? Well, you raise a lot of good points, and, and certainly we need to invest more heavily in weapons that do work in the new way of warfare, like special operations forces. Uh, warfare is going underground, and information is key, so we need you know better intelligence understanding and better strategic communications and all sorts of things. And I think that there's two ways to do it, is that there are industries that really matter and that need, we should shift our funding from old weapons of war, like aircraft carriers, to new ones. Like, how do we deal with strategic communication? How is it that a nation that invented Hollywood and Madison Avenue gets out-communicated by both terrorists and the Kremlin? You know, it's just, like, ridiculous. So it, it's, not a, it's not an either-or. You know, we, we can do this. Um, there are other constituencies out there that in, law, in Congress that should, you know, work for this. Um, the, but the bigger point is this, is that, Nations change their way of warfare reluctantly. Militaries change reluctantly. And, and partly it's because that the grit needed to win wars is not the grit needed to, for innovation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's part of every military's culture. And usually it takes the only way a nation will change its way of war is after it spills a great deal of blood. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to prevent that with this book. An example of this is 100 years ago in World War I. In 1916, 1 July 1916, the British lost 50,000 people in one day. 
in one day. And that's more than all the Americans lost in the Vietnam War in one day. And this is, you know, the British, like, charging machine guns in the enemy trenches. It's that kind of nonsense. And then the, the ne- very next day, July 2nd, the British order another massive wave. They didn't learn from day one. And even after World War One, the British and the French did not change their way of warfare. They thought, like all generals do, the la- they're, they're fighting the last war. And they thought the future, if Germany was to invade again, they w- it would be another static trench line defense war. Mm-hmm. So they built the Maginot Line, saying we're going to have it the best you know, trench, trenches that exist, the Maginot Line. And of course, Germany, which was almost killed after World War I, they had to adapt. And what did they adapt to? The Blitzkrieg. And they drove right around the Maginot Line, and they captured France in weeks, unlike four years of stalemate. So that is what I'm trying to offset, because even an undefeated military like ours can lose a war and that's where we're heading. And so we, we have to sort of look beyond the, the, the present you know, conundrums of political constituencies and see threats that are rising on our horizon and that realize that the way they're going to win is not militarily, but other ways. And, and war is more than just warfare, and warfare is more than lethality. We have to invest in areas that are not even military to, to defend our nation. And this book, The New Rules of War, explains what some of those things could be, and they're very outside the proverbial box, which is why some heads will explode in the Pentagon, but I think that's a public service. What should we make of our relationships with other nations given this this new landscape that you're describing? Because you have strong criticism for the United Nations and for NATO. And I'm just wondering if we're not in conventional war, as bizarre as that term is, and I think you rightly point that out, like what kinds of relationships should we forge around the globe? So that's a great question. So we... We desperately need diplomacy. I mean, our State Department has been left to wither on the vine for years now, and uh, it, but it also needs upgrading because it, like our Department of Defense, is, a, is essentially still stuck in the Westphalian way of warfare. And what we need to do is we need – so like the Westphalian way of warfare and diplomacy is like interstate stuff only. We live in an era now where the Fortune 500 is more powerful than most nation states in the world. Why don't we create alliances that are a mix of states and companies, multinational corporations? Why are we only talking to states? You look at El Chapo. I mean, he is – he essentially ran – a violent multinational corporation. Why don't we think of him that way rather than just cops and robbers? We need a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of the international landscape today, and that requires an upgrade to the United Nations, the State Department. It's not just the military that requires this. This is actually a good news book. It sounds depressing to a lot of people because it shocks them thinking like, oh my goodness, you know, we're not really ready for how war has changed. War has moved on, we've not moved with it. But it actually suggests ways to win and uh, ways that are meaningful for us. And this is important because it's inevitable that there will be another war and it will inevitable that Americans, young Americans, will fight and die. So let's minimize the dying and maximize the winning. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people follow you on social media, learn more, find your book, etc.? So you can get my book on Amazon. There's also an audio book and a Kindle version. You can follow me on Twitter at Sean McFade or go to my website, SeanMcFade.com, which has everything I'm doing. Thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Yes, thank you, Sean. I really enjoyed the book. What is on your mind outside of politics? Well, we're recording on my birthday, and I just had a great weekend with my family of birthday celebration. And I want to tell you, I felt myself getting weird about 38. It's so close really? to 40. It's so it's just inching so close to 40. Mm. And there has been kind of a lot of news in my personal life about people with really serious illnesses and things like that <gasps> that have just kind of brought home the heaviness of mm, this is what life becomes. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then I decided I should flip that and just embrace it and just know that I'm more equipped to handle it. And here I am True. and it's 38 and it's going to be beautiful. And look at all these women in their 40s who are just succeeding by every single metric, you know, at life. And so I'm going to enjoy it. So we had a good weekend. 
We worked on a jigsaw puzzle, and I really my husband and I. I know, like that sounds so ridiculous, but for me, just taking that much time and devoting it to something that doesn't accomplish anything—it's big progress. It's big progress in my life. No, I love a puzzle. I have some goal setting that I'm doing right now. Just some things that I've been thinking about. Well, that's interesting. I have never had a strong aversion to an actual number except for 25. Hmm. I had a fall apart at 25. I did not like 25. I think I actually stuck at 24 and then skipped right to 26. It was so round. There was something about like, I don't know, I guess I I picture a life in like 100 years. And so it was like one, I don't know. I didn't like it. Otherwise, I'm all in on aging. I had a beloved friend of mine from when our children were younger died tragically in a car accident. I think about her every time there's some conversation about aging or, you know, every day is a gift because I know she would love to be here with her children. I think about her all the time. And so I'm all in. Bring it on. Bring on every additional year. It was just 25 that hung me up. I get that. That that big percentage, like quarter yeah, life idea. It was too round. It was too round. I didn't like it. I've told people for a while that I had a quarter life crisis. I fully expect to have another one in a couple yeah. of years. This is just kind of what I do. But no, I think the same thing. Like when I really started thinking about it, I realized I'm so grateful for where my life is right now. Mm-hmm. I like myself better at 38 than I did at 25. And I can imagine, based on the example of lots of other women in my life, that I like myself even better at 50 than I do at 38. And so I'm just going to take it one day at a time. But we so we really celebrated this weekend. We kind of did birthday things all weekend. They were small things, but it was it was great. And it was really nice to spend that time with my family. Have you I was not busting on your puzzle doing. I just thought it was funny how you Mm -hmm. phrase it. I love a puzzle. Have you ever gotten (laughs) yourself one of those really beautiful wooden puzzles? Like the intricately cut wooden puzzles? No, but that sounds lovely. Oh, it is a sensory experience. They are so beautiful. You can usually get them on Etsy and stuff. But like my mom has two and like the pieces are things. So like there's a piece that's cut out like a lady with an umbrella or there are butterfly pieces if it's a butterfly puzzle. Oh, highly recommend. I'm going to have to find that. It was so fun Mm -hmm, to do something mm -hmm. just with Chad. I realized also that it's really hard for us to do things like during the waking hours of my children that they aren't involved in. And so for the two of us, our girls did their own puzzles in the floor beside us. And we kind of sat at the table and worked on our puzzle. We will be working on this puzzle for a while. We were pretty ambitious in our puzzle purchase. (laughs) But I'm thrilled that we have this thing to engage in together. It's It's so nice. I also wanted to tell you about a book I read this weekend. I think you'll like it. I read Juliet's School of Possibilities by Laura Vanderkam. She was kind enough to send me an advanced copy. It comes out uh, in a couple of weeks, March 12th, I think. So it's a parable. So it's fiction, which you know is a stretch for me. But it's fiction making some really important points about how we think about our time, which is Laura's area of expertise. It was a delight to read. I cried in the first chapter because the first chapter describes a person who has not learned important lessons about how she spends her time. Mm. And let's just say... That it was like a mirror of a past version of myself and kind of it kind of was nice because it let me think about how far I've come and also realize here on my birthday weekend how far I have to go in really thinking about how I spend my time and making sure that it's in ways and with people that I really care about. So loved this book from Laura Vanderkam. She's giving away really cool pre-order bonuses if you want to check it out. Juliet's School of Possibilities. It was great. I love her. I read everything she writes. I think she's so insightful about productivity and priorities and time and life. So I pre-ordered already because she was giving away like 136 of her like most and best time hacks. I was like, sold. So I'm really excited to read it when it finally releases. It's nice that she talks about productivity soulfully. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just here. Let's figure out how you can cram more in your day. It's more like you need to figure out what's important to you. And then that will drive your productivity. Totally agree. We also had a pretty chill weekend. I finished a book called Flights, which I highly recommend. It is not a fast read. It is a very unique read, but it's a really, really lovely, brilliantly written book. I highly recommend it. So I finally finished that book, and then we went to see Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. Is that the name of that movie? I don't know. It was good. It was really Everybody good. Everybody likes it. Yeah. Yeah. It's It just won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. The animation is brilliant. The story is really wonderful. It's a really new take on Spider-Man. And I mean, it's not a new take for people who read the comics, I think, but the movies 
for the most part, I don't feel like superhero movies have really gone down the the path the comic books take, which are like, there's, you know, it's all different. Like, Wonder Woman is dead. Batman is dead. They're alive. They're new. They're different. He's not, you know, they like, the comic books are like, they go AWOL. They just, they just totally reinvent things every couple years. So I felt like this was like the first movie that really took that approach. I really liked it. I thought it was brilliant. The song choice is really good. So we we loved it. So that's, we had a pretty low-key weekend as well. Did some Con Marine. It was time to do some more conmarine of the closets. Hadn't done that in a while. And that always feels good on a cold, wintry day. I'm kind of enjoying the new, the new March is the new winter kind of situation because you're in like spring cleaning mood. And sometimes in spring cleaning mood, you want to be outside in the new spring weather. So I'm here for the like cold March so that I can get my spring clean on and not feel guilty about being outside. I was happy to have a weekend just inside the house. I had like uh-huh. a migraine Friday night. So being just having some snow on Saturday and Sunday and this reason to just be in was lovely. I'm excited. Speaking of comic book movies about Captain Marvel, we have tickets oh, yep. to see it Friday night. I think it's going to be fantastic. I cannot wait. Well, we hope everybody had their own chill weekend. We will have a new episode of The Nuance Life tomorrow, and we'll be back in your ears on Friday with more paint soup politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.